Hello and welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. Today is our final May webinar focusing on OSHA related topics. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, long-term care facility, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased today to have Stanley Spitek, uh, Jr., President of Fire and Life Safety, joining us for a discussion on common life safety code deficiencies and strategies for compliance. Mr. Spitek is a fire service safety professional with over 35 years in emergency service, loss control, and asset protection experience. He is a former deputy fire chief, also referred to as Stan the Fireman, fire marshal of a metropolitan Chicago area fire protection district. His responsibilities included emergency management and the delivery of fire protection, emergency medical service, technical rescue and hazardous materials response, and disaster planning. Additionally, he was responsible for fire prevention bureau management and the delivery of code enforcement, fire investigation, building plan review, and public education programs within his jurisdiction. Mr. Spitek honorably retired from the fire service in June of 2003. As a safety consultant and founding partner of Fire and Life Safety, Inc., FLS, Mr. Spitek has developed a firm that provides its clients with a variety of proactive safety solutions that are designed to identify and eliminate risks, subsequently decreasing in organizations' operating costs and increasing levels of emergency preparedness. FLS proudly serves clients in a variety of occupancy type and uh, buildings including business, industrial, educational, board and care, skilled healthcare, public assembly, and senior housing. Additionally, he is a founding member of the Emergency Management Alliance, a group of specialized consulting firms providing disaster preparedness, emergency management, and security assessment and training services to the insurance industry and individual facilities in the national marketplace. He is also the Life Safety Disaster Preparedness Consultant for the Arizona Healthcare Association and the California Association of Healthcare Facilities. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions for Stan within the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address these questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CU certificates will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. This takes approximately one to two days. You do not need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities are also available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. Check their website for details. Go ahead, Stan. Well, Dr. Brooks, thanks for that uh, introduction. It almost sounds like I wrote all that information myself, but uh, enough about me. Uh, let's get right into this program. Well, welcome, everybody. And, Thanks for joining us today. I'm uh, joining you from sunny Mesa, Arizona, where I bid you a good morning and good afternoon from wherever you might be in the country right now. In Arizona, we don't change our clocks, so we are on Pacific time this time of year. But I think my introduction really sets the stage as to where my perspective is going to be when it comes on today's program. And certainly, a lot of what I want to talk about today is focused on compliance. But one of the things that I do, especially when I'm presenting for a large healthcare association like I'll be doing in Maryland in a couple of weeks or in Tennessee and Mississippi. I do a lot of work, as you can see, with the long-term care associations, but I also work with uh, hospitals and other types of uh, healthcare facilities, including hospice and uh, other of the 17 CMS uh, types of partic participants. But one of the things that I really like to focus on and set the stage right out of the box is that it's uh, an important topic that we're going to talk about today. And compliance is certainly an element of why probably most of you have joined us on the call today. But considering the practical experience I've had as a firefighter, as a first responder, I submit to you it can't always be about compliance for compliance sake, especially when we're talking about something as critical as the life safety code and even emergency preparedness. Uh, as you know, especially if you are one of those 17 provider types that are now subjected to new rules, including life safety code changes, as well as emergency preparedness, um, there's a lot on your radar screens in reference to compliance. But you've got to equate 
compliance to the practicality of why we do everything that we do. And when we think about some of the tragedies that have impacted healthcare facilities, and again, from my perspective, working so closely with long-term care, I don't want to um, tune you folks out from the hospital environment, but uh, working with long-term care, you know, I know that there's been some tragic fires that have occurred, uh, especially in uh, 2003 when we saw tragedies in Hartford, Connecticut, tragedies in Nashville, Tennessee, where in each incident in facilities uh, that had, may have had some uh, issues with compliance, whether they were sprinklered or not, whether they met the regulations at the time or not, in each of these two tragic fires, unbelievably, 16 people died in that facility that you're looking at on the screen in Hartford, Connecticut, when a small fire started in a patient room and staff was unable to control it. 16 people died in the NHC nursing home in 2003 when a fire raged out of control in a multi-story facility and the fire department uh, couldn't get to everyone and evacuate everyone safely. You know, if you're really interested in following up on these kinds of concepts, the NFPA typically will investigate these kinds of tragic fires, and especially for those of you on the line in long-term care or even hospital. You know, it's important to learn from the lessons from the past because even though we've got these tragic fires that have occurred and unfortunately are going to continue to occur, um, there's going to be emergencies that are going to happen in your buildings. And in particular, fire is something that we're going to focus on today. I'm really excited to be partnered with this organization because in September, we're going to focus on the new emergency preparedness rule that's going to broaden our scope from just fire safety and the whole new rule. But for today, you know, let's not lose sight of the lessons from the past. The fires where people and lives have been lost all the way back to the mother of all nursing home fires that happened in Missouri in the late 1950s where 71 people died in a tragic fire, to more recent events and the hazards and the causes that are right in front of your eyes. You know, you look at this picture right now and you say, okay, that's a curveball. Where is our fire hazard here? Well, I dealt with a fire that happened in a facility that had to do with the improper use and laundering of uh, microfiber mop heads. And you don't think that they're a big problem until they are. And the image that you're seeing on the screen right now is the evidence of a situation where staff didn't follow the rules, they didn't comply with the regulations and the instructions on how to uh, launder and dry these microfiber mop heads, putting them in a plastic bag, placing them under uh, a uh, stainless steel folding table. Would you believe that the damage that you're looking at that fire right now, when all was said and done, uh, you see a whole lot of uh, charred material, but you don't see the broader picture. When all was said and done in this fire, because staff cut a few corners and didn't follow the guidelines like they should have, this fire caused over $500,000 of damage to the healthcare facility. And again, on the screen, it doesn't look like a whole lot. We know that these fires and these emergencies are going to happen at inconvenient times. They're not going to happen uh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, they're going to happen on the holidays, they're going to happen in the overnight shift. So it's not compliance for compliance sake, it's compliance so that we can make our healthcare facilities safer. A safer environment of care for those people that you're given the honor and privilege of providing services to. Now we've seen progress, and I'm just kind of painting in broad strokes this morning, but from the uh, mid-60s to the mid-70s, you know, statistically speaking, that's an awful number that 15.8 people were dying in nursing homes every year due to fire. And you can see in more recent times uh, that number has reduced. Unfortunately, we know that with new CMS requirements and local jurisdictions that require enhanced fire safety components in buildings, we're going to see those numbers dive even more. So whether you are an ambulatory care facility, a hospital, a hospice, a nursing home, you know the mission is always going to be the same. We want to provide a safe and compliant environment of care for all of our stakeholders. That includes our residents, our patients, our guests, if we call them that, our neighbors, if we call them that, like I know some of the behavioral health facilities that I work with call them, to our staff, to our visitors, to our volunteers. We're compelled to make sure that our health care facilities are safe. But what are some of the issues? What are the issues that you deal with on a daily basis? You know, you've got different codes. You've got multiple jurisdictions. 
you get a new surveyor. You get the surveyors that are starting to get ramped up on the new edition of the life safety code that's in place that we're going to talk about at the end of the program today. A different inspector from a local jurisdiction. If I could see a show of hands right now, how many times have any of you on the call today received conflicting information? The local guy says this. The state guy says that. The loss control person uh, that comes in from your insurance company or risk management program tells you something completely different. You know, it's the cast of characters that you deal with, uh, from the good guys in the white helmets to the fire marshal bill types that come out and are there to make sure that you've got a safe environment of care, to the county inspectors, to the state inspectors. You know, it gets frustrating. You've got all these different regulators, all these responders, and if the responders get involved in the dynamic, you know, you get a group of firemen that come in and say, hey, why don't you have an exit sign over that door? Well, it's probably because the exit sign's not required. Then factor in your architects, your engineers, the vendors, consultants, guys like me, and then ownership and management. Do we all ever see things the same way? And you know what? The answer is pretty much no. So as a mock life safety surveyor working for the different healthcare associations, working for large provider clients around the country, and I do get the opportunity and the privilege of working with some of the big ones, the big multis that are out there, all the way down to the mom and pops that are out there. The reality is this. You know, you're such a regulated industry, and it's incredible that when a mock surveyor like myself comes in, uh, I see the same thing. I see the same problems over and over. It's not rocket science. It's compliance. I see poor documentation, whether it comes to the maintenance, testing, inspection of your fire protection systems, fire alarm systems, sprinkler systems, kitchen fire protection, fire drills. You know, we'll talk about that real briefly, but it's one per drill per quarter. Yet I still see facilities of all types, big and small, struggling with doing one fire drill per shift, per quarter, documenting it appropriately, and ensuring that the times are random and unpredictable. When it comes to training, and this is where the new emergency preparedness rule comes into play, you know, it's always subpar or minimal. Throw in a video, have your maintenance director talk about stop, drop, and roll, or pull, aim, squeeze, and sweep, or rescue, alarm, contain, extinguish, check a box, everybody signs the sheet, and we move on. That is not meaningful training. And when I get into your facilities, and what we're going to do in a few minutes here is I'm going to take you on a tour of your facility, at least virtually. I want you to kind of get into the mindset that we're walking around your facility so I can point out to you, like the nose in front of my face, the things that I see and the things that you just fail to sometimes acknowledge. I see the same hazards, the same unsafe practices, the compromising of the means of egress, a general attitude of complacency. You know, we've never had a fire. Um, and if we do, we've got a fire sprinkler system. So if anything were to happen, you know, call 911, the good guys show up and everything's fine. That's not a culture of safety or preparedness. If you don't have that culture of safety or preparedness, you know, how can you expect a positive result in times of an emergency? So I want you to get into the mindset right now. I want to take you on a tour of your facility and maybe you're going to get a better understanding why people like me get all uptight about these little minor things that you see and you say, okay, so the door rubs or it doesn't fit squarely in uh, the frame. Oh, there's a little gap. You know, what's the big deal? Well, integrate in a little smoke or a little fire. Prohibit that door from closing because somebody has wedged it open in a capacity that I see here. And I see this all the time, whether it's an improv improvised wedge, a wooden wedge, a rubber wedge. You know, there's a lot of over-design that has gone into your healthcare facilities. And not every door requires a closer. But when a closer is put on, and you're the ED and you want that open door environment and you decide to wedge open that door, that is a non-compliant condition in accordance with the life safety code. And in our smaller facilities, when everybody wants to jockey our, our beds around, particularly older facilities, I see this a lot in California where the age of nursing homes is, is very old, you know, the conflict in the swing path of that door under normal conditions is a nu nuisance. In a fire condition, that's a breach in a protected opening that's going to cause fire and smoke to spread. You know, I see this all the time. And I bet if you walk around your facility today after this call and you look at the labels on your doors, take note to how many of them are painted over. And just because you say, well, the survey's never cited us, 
surveyors never cited us on this, and it's been like that for years, there is going to be that federal surveyor, the mock surveyor, or a new state surveyor that's going to come in and say, that's not compliant, and you're going to get a deficiency because that label needs to be displayed. And it's all about gaps. You've got to make sure that those smoke compartment doors, those smoke barrier doors, fire doors, are in tolerance with the allowable gaps. And more times than not, when you bring out a caliper or a tool to check, that one-eighth of clearance that's required maximum in between those two leaves is often exceeded, as well as that undercut of three-quarter inches. You know, I use a couple of slides like this throughout my program to try to emphasize to you what I experienced as a firefighter you don't realize the resourcefulness of a door until it's closed and it can potentially save your life. Because this is just a one-hour door on a residential occupancy in a single-family home that had a garage fire, and you could see the results, the catastrophic results that are on the other side of that door. So keep those doors closed when they're supposed to be closed. Don't prop them open and don't get all uptight because the nasty fire inspector or the mock surveyor like me has got an issue with it. We need to contain fire and smoke, and that's why this is a common deficiency that we see. Penetrations in walls, in ceilings, in fire-rated barriers that need to be protected to contain and confine the products of combustion. And when we see everything from the kinds of things that you're seeing on your screen, fire and smoke is not going to be contained in an area of origin, like it's designed to be contained in accordance with the codes. NFPA 101, NFPA 99, and all the relevant, uh, relevant related codes. You've got to make sure that those folks that cause a lot of trouble in your facility, those low-voltage people, if you don't follow them, if you don't make sure that they're sealing up penetrations and they're leaving gaps around pipes and conduits and ducts in your building, smoke and fire is going to spread beyond its point of origin. And not only are you at risk of getting a deficiency, a fire is not going to be contained where it is supposed to be. Now, we can spend all day talking about fire stopping. But in general, you know, I just want you to get an impression because you know this. Again, it's not rocket science. You've got to use the right materials. You've got to use the right technologies or innovations to make sure that you're maintaining the fire resistance and the smoke barrier capabilities of these things that often get penetrated. What else do I see? I want you to walk around your building after this call and just look up. What kind of foreign material do you see on your sprinkler heads? Are they painted over? Do they have mud or muck or plaster or paste or any kind of foreign material, including corrosion or other things that you might see on a sprinkler head? If you see any of the things that you've seen on the screen so far, that all represents noncompliance. Speaking of California, I was in Southern California recently, and I was doing the outside walk-around of the sprinkler heads. And I almost said to myself, you know what, I've been in, inspecting this building for years, and I've never seen a problem on the outside sprinkler heads. I went to the very last head on the line under the protected uh, canopy, and sure enough, the wasps built the little uh, housing development that you see there right on the tip of the fire sprinkler head. So what's the problem there? Most of you on the call absolutely know what the magic number is, right? 18 inches. We need 18 inches of clearance below these sprinkler heads for them to operate. I see everything from sprinkler heads completely covered and compromised to storage height exceeding that 18 inches. We see sidewall clearance problems. You need to provide at least four inches of sidewall clearance around a sprinkler head from any kind of fixed appliance or fixture that's on a ceiling or a side wall or a column. You know, that light wasn't there originally, but somebody had a need, and they never considered how that sprinkler head is now compromised by the presence of that light fixture. How about oxygen? You know, low-hanging fruit, and I've already gone through a lot of them, wedge doors, sprinkler heads that are compromised, storage height that's too high or oxygen cylinders that are not properly secured within your facility. I took this picture at a facility in Louisiana about a year after Hurricane Katrina. The good guys from around the country came in, came in to rescue, to provide assistance, and they left some of their equipment behind. And when I went and visited a facility to do a survey to make sure that they were back up and running in a safe manner, I found a room where those oxygen cylinders were just in a corner. 
more commonly in your facilities, walk into a residence room or a med room. How often do you see that freestanding cylinder? Not a big issue until it tips over, fractures the valve, and all of a sudden you've got a projectile or a missile inside of your facility. You know that you've got to make sure that you are storing oxygen in appropriate ways, that you're delineating full tanks from empty tanks, that you're limiting any debris or combustibles, and you've got to follow the rules. The new regulations triggered by the 2012 edition of the Life Safety Code uh, now requires additional training for your staff on the handling of oxygen, and surveyors are asking um, for evidence of that training. And in my experience, a lot of facilities out, out there are getting tagged for lack of understanding of this new requirement. Another topic that we could spend all day on is electricity, or probably more appropriately, the misuse of electricity. All of the extension cords that I see in your facilities, uh, you know what you'd say, but we bought it at a large national retailer or from a supply company. But as any of us in regulated healthcare knows, you can't use extension cords or these types of power arrangements as parts of permanent wiring. I look at this cheap, inexpensive extension cord that's even available at the dollar store. And if you've got residents or stakeholders that are bringing in these kinds of subpar pieces of uh, electrical component into your building, they are creating fire hazards. I, I went on plenty of fires as a firefighter where this was the cause of origin in mostly single-family residents, apartment buildings, condominiums. But again, go on extension cord patrol. I know our maintenance folks, our facility sustainability people on the phone right now, you do it all day long every day. But it's almost a sure thing. When I walk into a facility and someone's invited me in to do a mock life safety survey, I'll get that maintenance director or facilities person who'll say, you know what, we're good with extension cords. But you know what, whether I've got a knack of finding them or they're just always there, they're always there. But the unapproved adapters, the over-taxing um, of our electrical system, these are the things that cause fires. This is the low-hanging fruit. You've got to make sure that you've got checklists, that you've got processes in place to make sure that you're policing yourself so the surveyor or the inspector doesn't find this. You don't need someone finding out that a cover plate is missing from a light switch because not only do you have a fire and life safety compliance exposure here, you've got a worker's comp exposure here. What if somebody cuts their finger, gets an electrical jolt? You've got a big liability with these common things that I see. Pop some ceiling tiles. Look in areas that are often used, especially if any work has been done recently in your buildings. Make sure that you're maintaining your systems as required. And understand this, I'm a proud Polish American. That's why I've got that nightmare of a last name. And I'm known as Stan the Fireman. And I certainly appreciate economy and innovation. But you know what, if it looks unsafe, it probably is unsafe, but that's a good picture. And I bet a few of you are taking a screenshot of that right now so that you can use that in your next life safety training session with your team. Look at the outlets. You know, again, nose in front of your face. They're there, but when I walk in fresh to your building or the surveyor does, these things jump off the page at us. And until someone gets injured or you get the deficiency, um, it's going to cause you to take a closer look at the uh, outlets that you've got in your facility. You know, again, I appreciate innovation, but if it looks unsafe, it probably is unsafe. You've got to make sure that your people aren't being innovative and they're not doing things that are going to overtax an electrical system by uh, tapping open a switch that needs to be thrown when it's overloaded. Or you've got to look inside of your circuit breaker boxes to make sure that uh, there's not open uh, slots like that that can be a hazard. You know, especially in our older facilities, there are never uh, enough electrical outlets in some of the places where we have to shoehorn in some of our operations. But there are certain things that you cannot connect a power strip to. Now, just to be clear, Everyone knows that you can't use an extension cord, but under certain conditions, you're allowed to use a power strip.
Now, some states or even some jurisdictions within states have got different perspectives on this, but one thing we know for sure, CMS and best practices dictate that we don't connect a microwave, a refrigerator, a mini fridge, or other things that um, are going to cause uh, things to be an electrical deficiency or a hazard. Because power strips um, are allowable, but understand that they're not infallible. That those power strips that are out there, they can be overtaxed. If they're not um, maintained in the proper way, um, they can cause fires as well. And don't think that you're going to be fooling anyone when you are taking uh, storage items that formerly were in the hallway and you're putting them in electrical rooms. You know, you've got to maintain clearance. I laugh at this picture because I remember I was at a facility in uh, Oregon where the maintenance man, you know, was a little uptight that I was coming in to do a mock survey. And when I did get there, uh, he finally admitted when I asked to look inside of an electrical room that he was hoping that I wasn't going to look into that um, uh, he said, all that stuff that you see right now was out in the hallway, and I didn't want you to write me up for that, so I thought I could sneak it into the electrical room. We've got to be cognizant of all the elements of fire protection and fire safety that's in our facilities. And be like me. Now, I drive my wife and kids crazy, because when I walk into any occupancy, whether it's a restaurant, a shopping mall, even a funeral parlor, I look up. I look to see, is there a smoke detector? Is there a sprinkler system? Has that been compromised with decorations like I've seen here? And these are actual pictures from a skilled healthcare facility where they got a little overzealous with their decorating for the Halloween holiday. Got to make sure that um, you don't put subtle obstructions in front of critical life safety components. You know what? In an emergency, people have a tendency to lose their peripheral vision. And if you obstruct the pull station, even subtly or even a little bit more overtly with decorations and whatnot, and it's critical that that pull station gets pulled as quick as possible when a fire is discovered. If you compromise it, it may not be used. And again, when it comes to innovation, you know, um, yes, that's a class A fire extinguishing agent, but certainly it's not going to comply. We've got to make sure that our fire extinguishers are accessible that they uh, are not compromised by anything, that they are tools that are going to be ready to use in a blink of an eye when a fire emergency occurs, especially our extinguishers that are in cabinets and so forth. You know, you can't have anything that obstructs access to them. And speaking of the means of egress, you know, I work with a lot of faith-based organizations that receive a lot of donations. And when, what do you do when your storage rooms are overfilling at the brim? You know, it's that back hallway. It's an area outside of the housekeeping department or wherever it's at in your facility. You know what? If that hallway, and you can look closely at the picture and see that it is identified as part of the means of egress by that exit sign at the top of the screen, you've got to make sure that uh, that access is free and clear. And when it comes to storage, you know what? A fire hazard is defined as any kind of situation that can lead to the ignition or the rapid spread of a fire. And the condition that you see here in the housekeeping practices in this particular storage room, by my impression, can lead to the rapid spread of a fire. So we've got to make sure that our storage rooms are neat, they're orderly, that our combustible fire load is segmented and arranged in a way that the sprinkler system will be able to put the fire out should a fire occur, and no one is going to get trapped in an overcrowded area like that. You know, when it comes to our means of egress, uh, there are um, concepts of integrating signage within your facility to identify primary and secondary means of escape. You know, I've seen everything from professionally designed uh, documents installed on hospital and nursing homes walls like this to pieces of paper where a crude uh, floor plan has been sketched out. You've got to make sure that um, you've got these types of diagrams in your facilities, that they're up to date. If you've done any remodeling, if you've changed anything, you've got to make sure that uh, they're actually applicable. You've got to consider that the means of egress 
is that one passive element of fire and life safety, practicality and compliance that's built into your building, that when you compromise it, when you restrict it, when you reduce it, you are compromising the ability of getting everybody out. Your hallways should not be obstacle courses. Everything needs to be to one side. But there's some relief that I'm going to talk about when it comes to items in your hallway under the new elements of the 2012 edition of the Life Safety Code that is going to give providers like you some relief. And yes, I get it. And this fine company has probably done some calls and made some presentations on the importance of a home-like environment of care in healthcare facilities. And we integrate a lot of things in our exit ways, in our corridors, but those things become hazards and obstructions. And if I was the surveyor or the mock surveyor and I saw something like this, I'm definitely taking a picture and citing it as a potential deficiency. You know, speaking of Halloween, uh, this is the same facility. Now, granted, I understand that we've got to have good humor, we've got to have a great attitude in our facilities, and this is a situation where it was a small rural facility, and the facility had a competition between the A shift and the B shift to decorate the A hallway and the B hallway, and whatever staff on either shift uh, was determined the winner, they got some kind of prize. I don't know if it was a free dinner or a gift card, but this is not the kinds of decorations we want integrated in our healthcare facilities. This is the next cover of the NFPA journal where in a nursing home dozens of people die because the staff integrated in highly flammable plastic sheet material that ends up causing rapid fire spread in the building. Look closer at the ceiling and you see that the sprinkler head is compromised. You see that the smoke detector isn't even apparent because they were completely covered by decorations. We've got to make sure that we remove the things that compromise our means of egress, our escape routes, not for compliance, for compliance sake, but to make sure that we've got that safe environment of care. And I know a lot of you are going to say, but man, we got an older building. I got a ton of room in that first floor or basement landing under my stairs throughout the complex. But you've got to consider the means of egress as kind of a sacred uh, pathway to safety. And no, you cannot store things like this under a stairwell. And yes, it is protected by a sprinkler system, but nothing can be within that stairwell as it will compromise egress. You know, what else do we see? We see a lot of focus and we see a lot of education in the fire service. And the more educated our surveyors and our local jurisdictions get educated on the technical elements of sophisticated fire protection systems, the more they have a tendency to look closer. And a lot of times, if they don't have that complete certification, if they only have enough information to make them kind of dangerous, they cause a lot of problems for facilities and providers like you that are out there. So you've got to make sure that you know, you're maintaining your systems in a compliant way that you're working with your vendors to make sure that they're being cleaned properly, tested properly. You've got to look close on a daily basis at the amount of grease and um, flammable vapors that are going to be airborne within your hood systems. When those things catch on fire, they cause a big problem. And you know what? There's a lot of safety hazards and there are a lot of safety contingencies in your building. But based on my estimation and experiences, including a local experience, where we lost our own Dairy Queen here in Mesa, Arizona on Main Street because the upper limit switch of the deep fat fryer failed on a Saturday morning when the girls turned the machine on to get ready for the service day, you've got to understand that that deep fat fryer that you have in your facility is probably one of the most dangerous uh, fire hazards that you have. It needs to be maintained properly. It needs to be positioned properly under the hood so that the fire protection nozzle is aimed at it. Probably one of the most common things that I see when I walk into a kitchen is a misalignment of your nozzles to the things that they're supposed to be protecting under your exhaust hood in the kitchen. So that's another homework assignment. When you're done today, look up for your smoke detectors and your sprinkler heads. Make sure nobody's hung anything 
from it in the activities room because we've got a special birthday coming up. Make sure you take a walk into the kitchen and look around at those nozzles and make sure that they're pointed at the targets that they're designed to protect. Other enhancements that might not be regulated by the CMS uh, uh, Life Safety Code requirements and is variable from jurisdiction to jurisdiction are things like lock boxes. Here you're seeing a particular brand known as a Knox box. There's another vendor out there called the Supra box. But make sure that your keys are up to date, that if you've changed anything, you make that call to the fire department so that they can change the keys, update any information that might be in there so that the firefighters don't have to use that universal key to get into your building. And that, of course, is the Axe and Halligan bar. And they'll use it if they have to, but you've invested into maintaining and complying with these kinds of systems. Make sure that those key boxes are up to date. Open up those dryer vents. Look inside. Are staff really maintaining them in a way that they're supposed to maintain them? I was in an assisted living facility in Arizona, and I looked inside of this dryer and took this picture, and I said to the maintenance director, so how often are we cleaning it out? He said, oh, we're doing it once a month. And I said, yes, you are. You know, it's every load or every second load or every two hours. Whatever you determine or manufacturer guidelines specify, make sure that you are keeping those vents and those traps clean because this is where the fires occur. And how about your training? Is it just basic race and pass? Do you throw a curveball every now and then to your team? Do you block an exit? Do you go through the carries? Is your training robust like it should be? Think about that a little bit and see about breathing some new life into your programs. A lot of the clients that I work with in Arizona, California, and around the country, I come in and do staff in services, and I get them charged up and tell them about the real-world events. I tell them that that fire drill that that 30-year employee has been doing every quarter, every shift, year after year, you know, it doesn't make a lick of sense until the real deal happens. And all that training and all that muscle memory and all the memory of the training that they receive kicks in, that is ultimately what's going to save lives. And remember, one per shift per quarter, random and unpredictable. Are you doing anything innovative to get a fire extinguisher in people's hands? Are you out in the back parking lot once a year and practicing pull, aim, squeeze, and sweep? Are you fortunate enough to have one of these innovative, innovative devices where everybody can do this in a simulated format? We've got to enhance our safety in our buildings because there's new requirements, and many of them are related to emergency preparedness, but specifically for today's program versus the things that I'll talk about in September, I believe it's on the 19th when I'll be with this company again, presenting on the new emergency preparedness rules. Um, you've got to understand that the Life Safety Code has been upgraded for CMS-compliant facilities to a new edition. Now, it's not the newest edition, but it's the 2012 edition of the code that became effective July 5th, 2016 with enforcement that started November 1st of 2016. And along with those new additions of the main elements of NFPA documents that you need to deal with, which of course is NFPA 101 and 99, there are other additions of the code that you must comply with as well. And on your screen, you're seeing all the different and common codes that we work with in facilities like yours, fire alarms, sprinklers, uh, your standpipes and host connections if you have them, your commercial kitchen uh, devices, fire doors. All of these things are the, re are the newly relevant uh, additions of the code if you are a CMS-compliant facility. So I want to quickly, as we're starting to wind down, go through some of the main things. There's a new requirement for FireWatch. And you need to make sure that your FireWatch policy and procedure and your logs and all of your other collateral that goes with your FireWatch policy reflects this. You've got to make sure that you don't, uh, well, you have to understand that the code and CMS says that you don't have to trigger a FireWatch in your facility when your sprinkler system is compromised for 10 hours or more. Previously, it was four hours or more. And many of the FireWatch policies that I see still articulate four hours, but the surveyors want to see your policy upgraded to the new requirement, which is 10 hours or more. Your system goes down because of a leak, a problem, a break, no water pressure. Uh, for more than 10 hours uh, of being down, then you have to trigger a fire watch. Now, I don't know about you, 
But if it was my facility, if my sprinkler system is down, we're going into a fire watch right away. But the reality is you don't have to do it until it's down 10 hours or more. Fire watch remains unchanged at four hours. When it comes to other requirements and changes, when it comes to alcohol-based hand rub devices, uh, there's some new elements of compliance that come into play regarding the volume of that alcohol-based solution that you're allowed to have within a smoke compartment within your facility. The rule is you can have more than, no more than 10 gallons of total volume of alcohol-based solution in any single smoke compartment, but here's some good news. That volume that you need to count towards that 10 gallons is only the volume that's in dispensers that are in common areas or in the hallways. If you've got these ABHRs in your resident rooms, which you're allowed to have up to one, that amount does not figure into the total 10-gallon aggregate. So make sure that you're familiar with that. When it comes to waste containers, both for clean or recyclable waste or soiled, util uh, soiled linens and utility, such as trash, um, there's been some changes there. When it comes to your clean waste outside of a protected area, you can have containers that are um, up to 96 gallons. So if you've got a large recyclable container at your nurse's station and it's less than 96 gallons, it does not require to be in a protected room. Uh, soiled utility or trash, the maximum in an unprotected area is 64 gallons. Another area where we see a lot of conflict is corridor projections. NFPA and CMS says that you can now come out six inches of corridor proje projection into your hallway, but ADA says four. So CMS is saying four. And then there are some states that have got other agencies like California that have an organization or agency known as OSHPOD. And if you're on the line from California, you're shaking your head right now, there are even more stringent requirements. So you need to be aware of corridor projection requirements as well. There are some new requirements when it comes to door locks and locking arrangements. And without getting too much in detail on this, because I could spend the full hour talking on locking arrangements, you need to understand that there are some relief elements to the new code. In the past, door locking arrangements were only, uh, special locking arrangements were only allowed for clinical purposes within a healthcare facility. That there was a medical diagnosis or reason why you needed to people why you needed to have people um, locked in a certain unit, a secure unit. NFPA and CMS has broadened the uh, interpretation of that to now include the safety needs of the occupants of a facility. So if you can make a case that you need to put a special locking arrangement, like a delayed egress uh, locking device or an access control device on a unit, uh, you can justify it not only for clinical needs but for safety needs as well. Of course, there are a couple of fail-safe or several fail-safe elements that you need to make sure on these arrangements that they release with the alarm, that they release with power failure, and so on and so forth. One other great uh, change with the life safety code when it comes to delayed egress uh, uh, locks, under the 2012 edition of the code, uh, previously under the 2000 edition, you were only allowed to have one delayed egress device in any single means of egress. Today, you can have more than one delayed egress device in any single means of egress. So if you have a secure unit in the middle of your building where you need to put a delayed egress device and you also need to put one on the outside exit from the building in the past, that would be considered non-compliant. Under the new code, it is compliant. When it comes to multi-story facilities, there's new requirements for stairwell signage, and if you get into the code, it will specifically tell you the parameters of the signage, including the descriptive requirements of the kinds of letterings that needs to be used, colors, uh, contrast, things of that nature. Probably one of the big things that you're going to have to deal with as a healthcare provider, especially if you're a nursing home, a hospital, or a regulated facility that, uh, that requires you to comply with the 2012 edition of the Life Safety Code, is the new Fire Door Assembly Inspection Requirement, or FDAI. You've got to do a comprehensive inspection of all the fire doors and smoke doors that are rated within your facility. Some of you probably have already had vendors show up at your door saying, we can do this for you. CMS says that your facility staff, your maintenance staff, can perform these functions in accordance with routine maintenance but it has to be uh, documented. And here's just a little brief 
snapshot of all the things that you got to maintain and inspect on the annual FDAI. So make sure that you become familiar with this new requirement because it's really important, as it is important to maintain the continuity of those doors. If they're not inspected, if they're not properly utilized, those protective devices are a breach and they're the difference between life and death. When it comes to your corridors, like I mentioned earlier, there's some new relief regarding things that can be in your corridors indefinitely, providing that they are not items that are in uh, use versus uh, in storage. As long as that med cart, that housekeeping cart, that food cart is there and it doesn't obstruct that clear width anything more down to five feet, that cart can be there indefinitely. There's also requirements or new uh, elements of the code that will allow you to put furniture uh, in your corridor. Some caveats regarding that is that those items need to be fixed in an eight foot wide corridor. The furniture cannot reduce the clear width any more down than six feet. Groupings can be no more than 50 square feet. They cannot compromise any functional areas like a door to a mechanical room. Uh, and they can't be any closer than 10 feet apart. In your cooking areas, um, there are new provisions. And again, we could talk all day about the culture change in skilled nursing facilities and long-term care. But the new code, or the new edition of the code, because understand this. The 2012 edition of the Life Safety Code is not the newest edition of the code, but it is the applicable edition that you need to work with. The 2012 edition of the code and newer code editions of Life Safety allow you to have open cooking arrangements in resident care areas within your facility. And they've downgraded the uh, hazard um, condition of a kitchen uh, to not being a hazardous area if appropriate fire protection measures are in those places. You know, we want to make a home-like environment in our healthcare facilities. And fireplaces and decorations can be part of all that, but there are some elements that you've got to be aware of. There are some requirements for fireplaces um, where they can be in the patient care area, provided the rooms are fully sprinklered and they're not located directly in a patient sleeping area. And when it comes to those combustible decorations, under the newest edition of the code that's enforced by CMS, in most jurisdictions, you are allowed to have combustible decorations in your corridors up to 30% of wall space and up to 50% space in a resident room that doesn't serve any more than four occupants, providing that the building is sprinkled and so on and so forth. The reality is this. We don't want to see that volume of combustibles in your building, but you've got to balance the reality of it with safety and understand that there are some provisions that allow that. The Life Safety Code has also added a new chapter, Chapter 43. It identifies all the things that you need to be familiar with when it comes to building rehab, renovations, modifications, construction, and it even acknowledges um, historic buildings and the provisions and code changes that uh, apply to those kinds of buildings. In addition to the, NF, uh, into the 2012 edition of NFPA, 101, the Life Safety Code, you need to understand that CMS also adopted the 2012 edition of NFPA 99, the Healthcare Facilities Code. And this has got some pretty significant implications because there's a new requirement that allows, um, that you need to be aware of if you do any renovation, construction, remodeling, and so forth. The previous edition of NFPA 99 was the 99 edition, which was a standard. The new edition is a risk-based code. And even though there is a newer edition of NFPA 99 published, it is the 2012 edition of the code that you must comply with. You've got to understand that the 2012 edition versus the 99 edition of NFPA 99 is completely rewritten. It's a risk-based code. And it's applicable to you as a provider based on the levels of risk that you identify through a self-assessment process. The 99 edition and previous editions of NFPA 99, the Healthcare Facilities Code, was a healthcare standard that applied in total to every healthcare provider. Under the newer editions of NFPA 99, and specifically the 2012 edition, a risk assessment is required whenever changes occur within your facility. It's probably a good time to mention this. If you're that administrator that's on the call right now, and you've always struggled with what can you buy that maintenance director or facilities management vice president 
the next holiday season, think about buying them the Life Safety Code Handbook or the NFPA 99 Handbook. Because not only does it explain the code in its entirety, it is filled with other resourceful information that further explains the applicability and the um, uh, integration of the code within your facility. But back to that risk assessment. You've got to make sure that you're doing a risk assessment that will determine, based on the types of systems and equipment that are regulated by NFPA 99, what would the consequences be if that system fails, if your electricity goes out, including your generator, if your plumbing or your HVAC, HVAC system goes out. You've got to speculate what would the worst outcome be, and then you've got to determine uh, a risk value associated with that outcome. And again, I could spend a full eight hours talking to you about this risk assessment process, but NFPA nor CMS tells you how to conduct this process. Now, there are some tools that are out there that are accessible online and available through other measures, but in essence, you've got to make a one through four determination of what the failure of the system would be and what are the consequences of that failure. If the electricity in a space that you're going to renovate fails and you speculate that the consequences of that failure can cause major injury or death to staff or residents or patients in that area, you would categorize that area as a category one. If failure of said system causes minor injury to staff or residents or occupants in the area, that would be a category two. Category three being discomfort, category four being no impact at all. The FPA, that risk-based code will apply. So if you're going through the electrical section and you're designing uh, a new uh, dialysis facility in a space that was formerly a storage area, you determine that failure of the electrical system in that space would cause serious injury or death. When you go into the code book, you've got to follow all of the category one requirements for the electrical system as defined in NFPA 99. So when it gets right down to it, it is all about compliance. But hopefully I've made the case to you that it's not just compliance for compliance sake. And whether it's that state surveyor, that county inspector, or the good-looking fire inspector from the local fire department that shows up at your facility, you want to be ready for survey. You want to be ready for those. But you also want to make sure that you're ready for that safe environment of care. Because when it comes down to compliance, you want to make sure that your environment of care is compliant with the codes and regulations that are out there. Dr. Gill. Thank you, Stan. Thank you so much. Uh, do you have a couple of questions? And uh, um, okay, we have evacuation routes in all hall hallways and waiting rooms. Our facility is fairly small. Do we need evacuation routes in each room also? Our current placement was determined and approved by the fire marshal. You know, technically, there is no place. And, Doc, is my signal any better now? You did say it was a little staticky. Uh, it, it's been okay. It did cut off for a few seconds, but you are back. Okay, I apologize about that. Um, there's really no place in NFPA 101 or 99 that specify that you have to have those diagrams posted. It is certainly common to have those evacuation diagrams in hallways and common areas, but like we would see in a hotel where you see an evacuation route posted, there is no requirement. Now, that is unless the local jurisdiction or somebody else suggests or you're required to do that. But most typically, um, signs are not posted in a healthcare facility inside individual patient or resident care rooms. Okay. Um, are you finding that this new 2012 edition of the Life Safety Code uh, enforced by CMS and its contractors is unusually challenging for providers? It is, because there's a couple of things that I didn't <clears throat> mention. One of the things is this, and if you have not been surveyed since November of 2016, the next time you get the survey form, you're going to do a double take because the form itself has been changed, along with the numbering system that now utilizes a three-digit numbering system for all parts of the code. There's no more K52, K61, K144. Everything has been realigned to a new numbering system, so that's a little bit of a challenge for providers to get used to. Uh, 
And also that thing that I did talk about, the fire door assembly inspection requirement, the FDAI. Some facilities are saying, yeah, we do a monthly door check. We're good. The FDAI process is much more comprehensive. It requires people with special knowledge to do it. And as I said previously, folks that work in a nursing home or a hospital, by virtue of their job title in a, as a maintenance worker, CMS has determined that this process can be done as part of routine maintenance. But a lot of facilities are having a struggle with that because there's actually like 40 different elements of a door, a door frame, and all of its components, including hinges and, and closers, latches and locks, that have to be comprehensively inspected and have to be documented. So the biggest challenge that I see is the documentation part. And there are some tools that are out there, and people need to research that, um, because um, that's probably one of the bigger challenges, along with the NFPA 99 risk assessment. Um, you've got to make sure that you're doing a documented assessment and the surveyors are aware of this and if they walk into your facility and see that you've remodeled an area, they're going to expect you to be able to produce a risk assessment documented that you've determined what elements um, those categories uh, have been identified. And if you don't do that, you're going to get a KTAG K 901 on that. Okay. Uh, what common deficiencies are you seeing um, issued with the new requirements? We're seeing the K901. Um, it's being issued. Uh, if a facility even says, listen, we haven't done any remodeling and we're not going to do any remodeling, but I work with a large national provider that has well over 500 units, and about 15% of their facilities are getting uh, tagged with the 901, and they haven't done any renovation or remodeling, but the surveyors have been trained on this new provision, so that at the very least they expect to see a policy and procedure in place uh, so a K901 is a common one, along with the typical things that I went through in my program today, means of egress that's obstructed, decorations, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that was relevant in the old code still is relevant with the new code. Uh, it's just that a lot of providers don't understand that there's some relief that they need to embrace, including maintaining their hallways in a compliant way that allows them to keep things stored in the hallways. What is the compliant distance for clearance to a ceiling in a storage area? Well, 18 inches below the lowest plane of the sprinkler head or the deflector is what's required. Now, a big controversy and a debate providers get into with jurisdictions is, can I store all the way up to the ceiling if I've got fixed shelving against the wall? And FPA and uh, the American Healthcare Association have got some interpretive guidelines that are out there that say that, yes, as long as you've got 18 inches of lateral clearance away from that sprinkler head or it's so located in the central element of the room, sidewall storage can go all the way up to the ceiling. But a lot of times it comes down to a matter of what battle you want to fight. If you get that fire inspector that comes into your space and says, I want a red line, I want 18 inches around the room, he or she may not be technically correct, but that is what... Um, most people comply with. An even plane of 18 inches around the entire room, even though in some cases you can store higher than that. Um, the new CMS emergency preparedness conditions of participation, what do providers need to know? Well, it's a whole new landscape, and that's why I'm excited that, uh, you know, on September 19th, I'm going to be on the line with many of these folks again, and we're going to be talking about the new conditions of participation. To overuse a word, uh, they're extremely robust. Um, there are a whole lot of new elements, whereas the old uh, requirements were very tepid, very um, abstract and broad stroke. You had to have a plan. You need to evacuate the building. Uh, the new requirements get into a ton of detail. For those of you that are in the hospital world on the call, you know, with joint commission uh, requirements and other initiatives that you've been involved with for years, you might be saying to yourself, well, it's not really much of a heavy lift because we're always doing it. But for the folks that I primarily work with in long-term care, there are things like additional assessment that they need to do. They need to do a risk analysis of their capabilities and capacities as well as the hazards that can impact them. They've got to have communication plans. They need to have more training, drills, and exercises. And that's the stuff that we're going to get to in September. But you know what, folks? Don't wait for September. CMS has already come out 
with the statement saying providers should not wait for the interpretive guidelines to come out because they haven't come out yet. Uh, the rule has been published. It was adopted last year, and it's going to be enforced November 15th of this year. And our speculation in the circles that I run in is this. Surveyors are going to come out hot and heavy with this, and if you don't have an HVA completed, if you can't show a communication plan, if you can't uh, illustrate a risk analysis of the special needs of your population, uh, you're going to be getting tagged. All right. Well, as Stan mentioned, uh, that is September 19th at noon Eastern Standard Time, so definitely uh, register for that. Again, thank you so much. This is an incredible presentation. Uh, please use Stan's contact information if you have any further questions. If you send them on to us, I will forward them on to Stan. Your PACOM CU certificate will be emailed automatically. Please join us again June 6th for Employee Handbooks with Allison DeRocco of Morris James. You can register for this webinar or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you again and have a great day.